Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Walking through the site of ancient Troy recently on a cold and wet morning, my thoughts turned to Heinrich Schliemann, the German archaeologist who in the late 19th century discovered the lost city of Homer. The story of the Trojan War had captivated the popular imagination for millennia and enticed explorers to search for the location of the famed conflict. Some doubted the place ever existed, claiming Homer invented the epic account of the ten-year siege of the city by the Greeks described in the Iliad. Growing up in the small town of Ankershagen in northern Germany, Heinrich Schliemann was fascinated by the legends of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, or so he claimed. But like Homer's classic account, Schliemann's own story blended epic achievement with mythic invention. He stated that at the age of seven, he vowed to one day discover the lost city of Troy. In fact, Schliemann's interest in archaeology only emerged in middle age. It was after he had accumulated enormous wealth that he turned his attention to the classical learning which he was deprived of as a boy. Heinrich Schliemann was born 200 years ago in 1822. His father, a Lutheran minister, was sacked for embezzling church funds and Heinrich left school to work in a grocery shop. At the age of 19, he walked over 200 kilometres to Hamburg, where he became a cabin boy on a ship bound for Venezuela. The ship sank in a gale off the coast of Holland. Schliemann survived by clinging to an empty barrel. Drifting ashore, he was fitted out by a farmer with a pair of clogs, torn trousers and woolen cap. Arriving in Amsterdam, he sought help from the German consul, Herr Quack, before finding employment at a counting house in the city on the Amstel. There he worked tirelessly, spending his spare time learning the languages that would equip him for international business. He became fluent in English, French, Dutch, Spanish, Italian and Portuguese. When asked if he could translate some letters that had arrived from Moscow, he replied, give me a few weeks. He soon wrote his first business letter to a Russian agent and at the age of 25 settled in St. Petersburg, where he earned enormous wealth by acquiring a monopoly in indigo. During the Crimean War, he later captured the market of saltpetre, an ingredient necessary for gunpowder. When he eventually made it to America, he further increased his wealth in the Californian gold rush. Unhappily married to a Russian wife who refused to join him on his travels, Schliemann, through false papers, secured a divorce in the US. With his sole aim now the search for Troy, he requested an Orthodox priest to find him a Greek wife who would share his passion for the ancient world. In Athens, he married the 17-year-old Sophia in Gerasromenu. Their marriage was a happy one. Sophia worked by his side on the excavations and bore him a son and daughter. In Turkey, Schliemann explored the area traditionally associated with Troy, but at the suggestion of Frank Calvert, an English expat who owned land in the area, began to excavate a mound at Hisserlik. He soon found what he claimed was the historic Troy. Unlike present-day archaeologists who work with a soft brush and trowel, Schliemann removed layer upon layer of earth by the cartload. He got into trouble with the Ottoman authorities over his licence to excavate, an accusation that he smuggled artefacts out of Turkey. By supposed lucky coincidence on the eve of his departure, he unearthed an exquisite collection of gold jewellery and ornaments, which he baptised Priam's treasure after the legendary King of Troy. Wishing to romanticise the tale, he claimed his wife transported it in her shawl to avoid the authorities. 
In fact, Sophia was at the time attending her father's funeral in Athens. A famous photograph shows the bejeweled Sophia wearing a panoply of diadem, earrings and necklace. The Ottoman government pursued Schliemann for his booty, which he secretly transported to Greece and eventually gifted to the Berlin Society for Prehistory. At the end of World War II, Priam's gold was transported by the Soviet Red Army to Moscow, where for almost half a century it lay hidden in the vaults of the Pushkin Museum. In 1994, Russia invited international scholars to view the collection. Although it was not Priam's treasure, but a cache from a period some 1,200 years earlier, it was an extraordinary moment for the world of archaeology. The treasure is now being claimed by Germany, Turkey and Greece. Although he made other amazing discoveries in Greece, particularly at Mycenae, from where Agamemnon led the Greeks to recapture Helen, Heinrich Schliemann is most famous as the one who discovered Troy. He has been criticised by later archaeologists for his excavation methods and his unreliable documentation, but also recognised as the father of Mediterranean archaeology. Among his admirers were Gladstone, who popularised his discoveries in Britain, and Freud, who confessed that Schliemann was the only person whose life he envied. If I had been a minimalist, I would never have got a dog. Minimalist design emerged as a calming antidote to the brash chaos of modern life, and dogs don't really get this. When a dog moves in, sleek surfaces are dishevelled, smooth lines get roughed up, and serenity is severely ruffled. This is okay by me. I appreciate a vague tidiness, but pristine simplicity unnerves me. If my surroundings are too neat, I find there's insufficient distraction from the usual low-level anxious gibbering in the back of my brain. A little canine clutter is welcome. But I'm frequently perplexed by how disproportionately large a mess a small dog can make. A shrewd minimalist would naturally designate a particular space for a new pet, tastefully furnished with a considered blend of form, function and flair. The internet is awash with such streamlined suggestions, a brief browse reveals an entire range of multi-use furniture, including a coffee table dog den and a cunningly constructed cat bed and bookcase combination. Exploring further, my eye was caught by a mysterious wall installation. Irregular side-lit segments of polished wood protruded in a pleasingly random arrangement from floor to ceiling. This turned out to be a feline climbing frame integrated into a sitting room. If you'd rather a fully separate, detached pet residence, there are even chic websites purveying condos for cats and datches for dogs. This level of home design for pets can be pointless because the creatures usually make their own decisions and are then hard to shift. My wife was early at the hairdressers recently, but couldn't wait on the capacious sofa intended for customers because it was in the sole, jealously guarded possession of Dolly, 
an aged shih tzu with a neglected coiffure and a menacing underbite. Our own terrier is about the same size, but far less protective of her territorial claims. She is also less hirsute and much less likely to molt. These were factors when we chose her. We'd seen the carnage left by visiting dogs who'd shed hair like a sandstorm spreads dust, and we were equally determined on something small. Our boys had sustained a long get-a-dog campaign for months before we chose her. They told us endless tales of their imagined adventures with a succession of loyally affectionate huskies and Alsatians. But once they grasped that a big dog required perhaps three hours exercise a day, thereby drastically reducing Xbox time, they wised up and scaled down. So a little furry puppy duly arrived. Part Bichon Freeze, part whatever you have in yourself, she pretty much took over. The first thing we purchased was a crate. An example of extreme, unadorned minimalism, it was essentially a cage and I didn't like it. We'd been persuaded that nightly imprisonment would teach her a secure sense of place, but I wasn't convinced. Besides, if we had to succumb to the architecture of incarceration, I would have preferred a Chateau Bastille with a playful turret, rather than something designed to hold Hannibal Lecter. We decommissioned the thing to make way for the Christmas tree and locked it in the garage. It comes out only when we travel with a dog and need to redeploy it for extraordinary rendition. So now she sleeps wherever she likes. A particular spot on the sofa, the bean bag by the log basket, a rug in front of the stove or my armchair whenever I vacate it. These are all in addition to her actual bed. She ate the first one we bought her and we spent more time picking the replacement than we ever did choosing our own. She only rarely fights with a new one and occasionally drags it about, but mostly its station is at the bottom of the staircase, up which she often looks with a rueful whimper. Long months were spent teaching her that upstairs was off-limits. When I heard her, sneaking up, step by tentative step, on weekend mornings, it amused me to tiptoe out of bed, then suddenly stamp to the bedroom door and hear her skittering frantically back down. We gave her free rein downstairs, and she's decorated the place accordingly. Her many personal possessions are displayed with a maximalist prodigality. Our boys shed their toys as they grew up. We moved them on to younger cousins, charity shops or the recycling centre, so downstairs is no longer an obstacle course of sharp Lego and wheeled vehicles. There are new hazards instead. There's a chewy thing, a licky thing, a squeaky thing, a tugging thing, spare leads, a collar with extra bling for special occasions, and our dog's bra. This is a chest harness which is less likely to throttle her than her collar on long, eager walks. The younger boy and I were recently trying to wrestle her out of it while my wife was on the phone to his teacher. So the teacher distinctly overheard me say the words, help me take her bra off. Maybe we should call it something else. visit to Tralee, 
I came across the statue dedicated to one of the town's much-loved sons, Christy Hennessy. Christy was a unique man, a unique talent, and a very gifted songwriter and musician. In the early days, and being painfully shy, he was perhaps scoffed at in more mainstream music circles. But he was blessed with that wonderful attribute, a very Kerry sense of humour. Taking a photograph of the statue, I remembered the night myself and my friend went to see him at the Helix in Dublin. My friend, not being as acquainted with Christie's repertoire as I was, was initially hesitant to accept my invitation and only agreed to come along after some gentle persuasion and bribery. But by the time the concert had reached its finale, she was a convert and stood enthusiastically at the end of the night to join a standing ovation. With no fancy stage production, no fancy backdrop, just some accompanying musicians and a lone spotlight, Christy came out with his guitar and sang. He laughed and told stories in his own inimitable style to a warm and receptive audience. With his wide grin and blend of accents, this very Kerry London man laughed self-effacingly at himself as he related stories of socialising in the dance hall in Tralee in a song, Denny Street. He sang of his early childhood days in the song, Cowboys, his life on the building sites in London in a song, Soho Square, and my favourite, Roll Back the Clouds, his personal song of endeavour to break into the music business, which could serve as an anthem for anyone striving to fulfil an individual dream. After the concert, Christy came out to the foyer to shake hands and mingle with fans. My friend and I bought a CD, my previously sceptical pal buying A Year in the Life and me buying Stories for Sale, which Christy happily signed and which we played in the car going home. Since then, we have both enjoyed many different concerts, some of them larger, more elaborate productions, but that warm, intimate concert was undoubtedly one of the most enjoyable and one we still recall with great fondness. Christy Hennessy was born Edward Christopher Ross in Tralee, County Kerry, on the 19th of November, 1945. Shy and unassuming, he was an unlikely and reluctant celebrity. He left school at 11 and a half, probably due to his severe dyslexia, and his first job was as a messenger boy, which he recounts in the song of the same name. His passion was music, and he was a great storyteller, and though barely able to read or write, he would compose songs and record them into a small cassette player. He just wanted to be accepted as a musician. He moved to London at 15, and worked for years on the building sites there, sending money home to Kerry. He got involved in the flourishing London music scene, joined a band as a drummer, then taught himself the guitar. By the early 1970s, he was singing in small folk clubs and pubs, while still working by day as a painter and decorator. In the intervening years, he married his wife Jill and had a family, a son and two daughters, Tim, Hermione and Amber, all three musically gifted in turn.
Having recorded an album in the 1970s which sold disappointingly, Christy wrote songs which became hits for other artists like All the Lies That You Told Me for Francis Black. And the story goes that while working on the building site, someone once called out to him, Hey Christy, don't forget your shovel. The title of the hit for Christy Moore. He was in his 40s when he finally had a breakthrough with the song Roll Back the Clouds with stunning backing vocals by his daughter Hermione followed by A Viewer to Fall, a duet also with Hermione. After that, his album The Rehearsal went triple platinum and even outsold U2 in Ireland. The music business began to sit up and take note. His success was both hard-earned and deserved. Although a latecomer to fame and fortune in his 40s, he left behind a very large collection of songs, Sheila Doran, Oh Jealous Heart, Remember Me, She's a Lovely Girl and You Can Go Far, a catalogue which would be the envy of many contemporary artists. Christy sadly passed away in London on the 11th of December 2007 at 62 from a form of asbestosis following years of working on the building sites and he now rests in the old rat cemetery in his native Tralee. Sitting by the statue erected in 2009 in his honour, it is only fitting that this unique, gentle and gifted man has forever been embraced by the people of Tralee as one of their own. I've been sitting here so long For you to hear my song but all you want to know Have I been on the radio? Who's the biggest star I've seen? What is my favourite scene? And if I get the job My mother always advised that you should blow your own trumpet all you can but that you should also recognise your limitations. Her words resonated around our old family home recently as I attempted, not entirely successfully, to paint walls without getting antique cream on the ceiling or the skirting boards. My mother was the son we all orbited around. She was a woman of many talents, but among her limitations was housekeeping. She just didn't care about home decor. The house was always warm welcoming and comfortable but nothing went with anything and the carpets lasted well beyond their sell-by date. Added to this lifelong indifference was the increasing frailty in her final years and so the house was in need of quite a makeover when nine months after she died we prepared to get it ready for new lives. It was a bittersweet experience which began with the big clear out. I was prepared to find going through her clothes difficult, but in the end it was the smallest objects that undid me. A pair of her glasses, her handbag, her makeup in the downstairs bathroom, a notebook with her handwriting. As anyone who has cleared out a family home knows, you can take a few things with you, but you cannot keep everything. And so, as time goes on, you steel yourself as you assign another piece of a precious life to the bin.
But once the clearance was done and we began on the spruce up, things changed. The air felt lighter and as we painted walls, the house seemed to wake up from the slumber of its recent years of neglect. We marvelled at the ceiling heights and the beautiful coving at the top of walls that are still smooth after so many decades. We never noticed these things as kids and young adults, but now we marvelled at the beauty of the workmanship. We took up the multicoloured swirling carpets to reveal the most beautifully laid wooden floors. Oh my God, we gasped. No gaps, wide boards. Wow. I could feel the house smiling in happiness as its magnificence was slowly recovered. We remembered how cold the house was in winter. Unusually for the 1960s, there was a heating system. But weirdly, just two rooms had vents which blew out the supposedly warm air. Thankfully, there was an open fire, which we huddled around every night, watching television in one-channel land. In fact, the house has four open fireplaces, including a small one in one of the bedrooms, which was only lit when someone was sick. Wonderful, comforting cosiness. My brothers were entertained when I suddenly remembered that when we moved in, we discovered that the good room had the ultimate in 1960s chic, a corner bar. As a seven-year-old, this was a very exciting find and I was thrilled to play pub for the few weeks it survived until my pioneer father had it removed. He clearly thought it sent the wrong message, not only to his children, but more importantly, to whatever guest was deemed worthy enough to be hosted in the good room. Upstairs in the box room, I concentrated hard as I tried not to get the paint on anything apart from the walls in what had been my teenage bedroom. Having no sisters, I had the luxury of a room of my own, while my three brothers shared. In the 1970s, this little room had wallpaper of huge purple flowers and a purple carpet, an homage to Donny Osmond's favourite colour. Posters of Mr Osmond and his brothers interrupted the flowery madness, which once caused my granddad, who lived with us for a time, to wonder how I slept in a room full of white teeth. It's like a mad graveyard, he remarked. In this flowery graveyard, I placed an old-fashioned kitchen cabinet, which I had painted and repurposed into a desk and where I studied for my leaving cert. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My next project is my grandmother's old sewing box, which my mother inherited and wrecked by overwatering a plant that lived on it. Now it's waiting for me to restore it to some kind of glory. Soon our old family home will be beginning a whole new chapter of her life. I think of her as a she. I like to think she's excited at the prospect and we feel proud to relaunch her onto her next adventure. It was hard work and poignant but ultimately satisfying to go through this process of saying goodbye to a home which will continue to carry our stories in her walls and in the garden forever. Even though I know that somewhere close by, my mother is wondering why on earth we bothered. I can almost hear her muttering, Sure, you're all mad. Wasn't it grand the way it was? I think I'm going back to the thing.
No novelist gets close to Erskine Childers when it comes to living the life of the books. James Bond and George Smiley played out the fantasies of Ian Fleming and John le Carré, but Childers first invented the modern spy thriller and then spent the rest of his turbulent life trying to outdo the adventures of his own creation. Robert Erskine Childers was born in London in 1870 into a family with distinguished political connections. When he was six, his father died of tuberculosis and his mother was removed to an isolation hospital from which she never emerged. Childers and his four siblings were sent to Ireland, to Glendalough House, County Wicklow, to their mother's family, the Bartons, wealthy Anglo-Irish Protestant landowners with Irish nationalist leanings. After school he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, and then settled in London as a junior committee clerk in the House of Commons. Following a sciatic injury, his passion became sailing, and with an 18-foot sloop he undertook expeditions into the Baltic. In early 1900 he served as an artillery driver in the Boer War. Invalided home, he began work on a novel that would be published in 1903 as The Riddle of the Sands. Childers' book seized upon contemporary English suspicions of an imminent German invasion and turned them into a bestseller. The novel's hero, Carruthers, works in the Foreign Office and has all the well-bred, insouciant qualities found 50 years later in Commander James Bond. During a hot August, Carruthers accepts an invitation to join his friend, Davies, in the Baltic. Carruthers slowly realises that he has been invited not as a deckhand, at which he is hopeless, but because he speaks German, which Davies does not, and that the point of their mission is not duck-shooting, as Carruthers was led to believe, but tailing the boat of a shadowy figure whom Davies suspects is an English traitor involved in setting up secret German naval bases in the shelter of the Frisian sands. Subtitled A Record of Secret Service, the novel is remarkably modern. The technical sailing data give the book its backbone, a new realism that would become a mainstay of authors like John Buchan, Eric Ambler, Alistair MacLean and many others. Most writers would have used this success to build a publishing career, but all of Childers' subsequent interest seems to have been in outdoing Carruthers. In January 1904, he married Molly Osgood, daughter of a wealthy doctor, whose wedding gift to the newlyweds was a 51-foot gaff-rigged yacht, which they named Asgard, after the mythical home of the Norse gods. An idealist, well-read and intelligent, Molly was a fierce opponent of imperialism. Soon Childers became a champion of home rule for Ireland. In May 1914, he met a figure straight out of spy fiction. Darrell Figgis, an Irish poet and novelist, had been tasked by Irish nationalists, including Sir Roger Casement, with purchasing German arms for the Irish cause. Figgis chose the yacht-owning Childers to transport the contraband. They travelled to Hamburg together, posing as Mexican partisans and in the offices of Magnus Brothers, signed a contract using false names for the purchase of 1,500 Mauser rifles and over 30,000 rounds of ammunition. Two months later, Erskine and Molly sailed the Asgard from Cowes in the Isle of Wight 
to the mouth of the Scheldt in Zeelandic Flanders, where, in the company of a smaller yacht, they rendezvoused with a German tug. On Sunday, 26th of July, in high seas, Childers skippered the Asgard carrying 900 rifles into Hoth and became an instant hero for the Irish cause. Soon after, with Britain now at war with Germany, he saw no irony in joining the Royal Navy. After the war, he was back in Ireland, where Arthur Griffith, founder of Sinn Féin, believed him to be a British spy. In October 1921, Childers, now a Sinn Féin TD, was, at Eamon de Valera's direction, appointed Secretary-General to the Irish plenipotentiaries sent to London to negotiate what would become the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Despised by Griffith and barely tolerated by Michael Collins, Childers privately briefed Dev as to what he perceived to be the Irish surrender to British demands. Dev's refusal to accept the treaty was at least partly primed by Childers, as were the leader's subsequent equivocations, which, despite the treaty being accepted democratically by the Dáil, led to the Irish Civil War the following year. Childers cut a somewhat forlorn figure among the military men and was mainly confined to a house in Bacroom, where he wrote anti-treaty propaganda. On 10th of November 1922, summoned by Dev to Dublin, he stopped over in Glendalough House, his childhood home. The Free Staters were waiting. Childers was found in possession of an unlicensed semi-automatic pistol given to him by Michael Collins. He was brought to Dublin, tried by National Army Court Martial, and on 20th of November was sentenced to death by firing squad. His life had been lived out as the survival fantasy of a small boy whose parents had suddenly disappeared, a life of perpetual action in which he was the hero. He was taken out at dawn in Beggar's Bush Barracks on Friday 24th of November 1922. Like Carruthers, to the end he remained the epitome of upper-class English composure. He shook the hand of each man lined up to kill him, and then, blindfolded against his wishes, his last nonchalant words to them were, Take a step or two forward, lads. It will be easier that way. The poet Elizabeth Bishop painted as a hobby, and in these paintings stoves recur again and again. Elizabeth Bishop's Stove Not home, but a symbol of home, moving from the corners inward with watercolour and gouache. It was the free hand chose this, transformer of the dull kitchen to a warming room far from the storm-bell's erratic clang. Too much to lift alone, and yet it turns up in each new geography, the wood-burning stove in Minas, the Boston hearth, possible only in the still-moving world. 
On this morning's programme, we heard Heinrich Schliemann by Fran O'Rourke. After that was Pet Paraphernalia by Philip Judge. And then A Very Kerry London Man by Mary Wall. A Home Reborn by Barbara Scully. Uskin Childers, The Riddle of the Man was by Peter Cunningham. And finally, Elizabeth Bishop Stove, a poem by Grace Willens. The music was Study on an Ancient Greek Scale by Harry Parch. And that was played by the Kronos Quartet. Then Martha, My Dear by The Beatles and Roll Back the Clouds by Christy Hennessy, Going Back by Dusty Springfield, and finally, The Theme from the Spy Who Came In From the Cold by Roland Shaw and his orchestra. And you might like to know, Peter Cunningham's latest novel, Freedom is a Land I Cannot See, is published by Sandstone Press. Barbara Scully's recent memoir is Wise Up, Power, Wisdom and the Older Woman, and Joyce, Aristotle and Aquinas by Fran O'Rourke is published by the University of Florida. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.